Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dak Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. We're in my apartment. Mm-hmm. I want to do a tease because uh, oh. last time we did an episode, we talked about us going to Husson's show and we did and then we deep dive on it in the fact check. We're going to give a full account of what happened at that show. Yeah. And a review and a declaration. That's right. Okay. Today we have Dr. Amishi Ja. She is a neuroscientist and a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She is also the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. Her work has been featured at NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. Most importantly, she is a spunky gal from Chicago. I got a bang out of her and we had so much fun talking to her. After we were done recording, she was telling us a couple stories and she knows everyone. Oh yeah, She's yeah. Very connected. Very dialed in. She has a new book out called Peak Mind. Peak Mind teaches you how to train your brain to pay attention differently. So please enjoy Dr. Amishi Ja. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. He's an So you've come in from Miami? You traveled to us. I did. Thank it's the you. first time I think I've traveled in two years. Since. Get out of here. Wow. Does it feel awesome? It Do you feels feel like you're so weird. <laughs> it's so strange, yeah. Now, can we talk about the U for a second? Please. Yeah. So she teaches at University of Miami. Uh-huh. Best 30 for 30 of all time is yes. the U, part one and two, and now there's maybe even a three and a four. Have you watched that? I think I had to before we worked with the football team. I would think that would be because the culture of that football team is very, very specific. Yeah. And so interesting. There was a period there in the in the 90s where they were much more popular than the NFL team that was in town. Oh, wow. What kind of parents do you have? 
Do you have first They're generation? They're both Indian. Yeah. Well, clearly, but... I was born in India. You were born in mm. India. But I was one when I came here. From your perspective, how was their transition from there to Chicago? Oh, you know, it's really hard to say because I grew up with them, right? Right, so, right. But definitely the house was a different world. Mm-hmm. Sure. I don't know if you had that experience. Yeah, a little different. My mom grew up... In Georgia. Oh, wow. So okay. I was a little removed. Like you, her mother came at like three six. or six. Oh, or wow. Two. Well, you're a lot younger than me. That's the first thing to realize. 34. <laughs> That's still a lot younger than me. Yeah. I'm 50, so. Okay, there okay, we go. I'm right there. If it makes you feel better, we were on a flight home from London last week, and she... <laughs> the flight attendant came up, and she, she was calling me sweetheart, and I was like, oh, maybe she's just being, you know, nice or whatever. But they were English, let's add. Like, if you hear that in the South, that makes total sense. Yeah, but she was calling me sweetheart, and then she said something about your sisters and pointed to their children that are six (laughs) and eight. Which are as Arian, they're Adolf's wet dream. I mean, they're bright blonde hair and blue eyes, (laughs) see-through skin. Yeah, and I was like, oh, they're not my sisters. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then Lincoln said, I wish she was my sister, and then she got kind of caught up in that. And then, (laughs) and then when when she came for the drink orders, I was like, I'm, I'm going to have a glass of wine. She was like, um, oh my goodness. are you 18? Are you 18? And oh. I said, oh, yeah, I'm 34. <laughs> and I've never seen a reaction. I mean, she was stunned yeah. to her core. That's a 16-year That's pretty under. good. That's yeah. a big I mean, <laughs> it doesn't maybe feel so fun right now, but... I know, but this has been going on my whole life, yeah. and I'm waiting for it to get fun, and yeah. so far, no. <laughs> no well, yet. I'm going to tell you, well, it's just about to get fun, because all I of your know. peers are not going to get mistaken for being 17. Let's just say that. It's just a weird thing to have to tell someone. Like, you're really, really, really wrong about the thing you think about me. I don't know. It's strange. Well, so in high school, I looked inordinately old. So the last time someone thought I was 17 was when I was like 13. (laughs) And then my girlfriend, Carrie, is like you. She looked really young. And um, we were at a restaurant. We were sitting on the same side of the booth. And we were in high school, so we had like kissed a little bit and everything. And the fucking waitress brought the crayons and the coloring mat for for her. her. (laughs) And then another time we went Who cares for her? But I was like, I said to the woman, do you think I'm in like a creep? Like I'm kissing someone who should be coloring before the food arrives. And then the other time it happened is we went canoeing and we're on this bus and it was like a family reunion of mine. And they make this announcement that everyone under 12 has to wear a life vest. Oh no. And again, the person hands her a life vest and she's like, I'm 19. And she goes, I'm sure you are. Please wear the life vest. I totally dismissed it. They don't believe you. It's crazy. That part's not fun. That happened also when I was in Santa Barbara with my, it's really bad when I'm with my parents because they also look young, I think. So everything's just all askew. Skeddy wampus. Yeah, and we were in Santa Barbara and we were at the bar the three of us, my parents and me, and the waitress was like, um, I'm going to need to see your ID. And I was like, I'm with my parents. <laughs> and you you see that they're, you know. And I was like, I'm 33. And, and she was like, yeah, but if you look younger than, what was the number she said? Like 20. 57. 20. <laughs> she said, something like, if you look younger than 25, I have to card you. And I was like, 
okay. And then I had to like walk all the way back to, I was, I I was not a, happy. I bet she got a, a, a patented Monica eye roll. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Now, Chicago, so if I can speak for Monica, her experience was kind of, she wanted to distance herself a bit from the Indianness. So what was your experience? Did you embrace it or did it, was it something that terrified you? Oh, I mean, my husband's white. Okay. And that was a huge deal. I would say... Even it's interesting now because, like, we just had Navratri and, you know, these big Indian festivals. And my son's, like I said, he's away at school. And I'm like, you should go to these things. He's like, why? I was like, that's true. I never wanted to go to any of that. But it's like I'm defaulting to something. And I'm like, I never wanted to do any of that. Yeah. Even in college, I tried my best. I mean, I definitely had Indian friends. Yeah. But it was always, like, I never feel like I fit. Yeah, sure. And I probably didn't feel aligned. Like, I was just, like, different, you know? I mean, right. I wanted to study the brain, and I was interested in consciousness. I seriously thought, okay, I got a couple choices here. I can be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I can be an accountant. I can probably do something in engineering. Like, that's what was available to me, yeah. given the kind of norms of the family environment. And so I'm like, okay, that's it. I'll be a doctor. That sounds cool. And then in high school, starting to volunteer in the hospital, I hated it. Ooh, what aspect? Because I think oh, I the would smells, too. the sights, the sick people. Like I was just like, it's and a I just, place. and I just was like, I don't want to treat people that are sick. I'm not interested in that. And I felt bad because at that point, I did have a lot of Indian friends who were like, No, this is great. It's in my passion. Mm, and I was mm-hmm. like, No, not me. But it took me a while to even admit it, like admit it to myself, admit it to my family. But I super lucked out because one of the first places I got transferred to after some of those original candy stripe around the whole hospital kind of thing was a brain injury unit. And I was like, oh yeah, this is very interesting. So I, my job was pretty trivial, like take the patients, take them outside. But I could see, especially there was a couple cases where I'm like, I really remember this distinctly of they came in and they could, they look bad. Uh, I mean, uh-huh. usually some kind of motorcycle accident or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to be careful. I've been, I've been in those Wear the helmet. <laughs> but then in particular, there's one guy I remember, I thought he was a quadriplegic. My job was to actually take him outside for fresh air. So they'd put him in a wheelchair. I'd push them or it'd be some kind of massive contraption because there'd be. Can I ask, is this during an exam or like a pre-op situation? They're there for the long haul. They're, it's oh, a brain injury oh, unit. Oh, 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 unit. Okay. So it's okay. a brain injury oh, wow, unit. Wow, so wow, they're wow. there for a while. So, and, and I'd see them multiple times. If I go week after week, they'd still be there. But at some point, this same guy who I thought was a quadriplegic, all of a sudden he was in a different wheelchair and he could move himself with a little lever. And I was like, this is wild. And then, so he was just talking to me about what he was doing. And he's like, yeah, I go to PT and all the training, but then at night I close my eyes and I imagine myself moving the wheelchair with my finger. Mm. And I was like, wow, he's changing his brain from the inside out. He's yeah. doing something on his own every day privately that is transforming his ability to function. And that was very exciting to me. I was like, oh, I, this is what I want to study. So it was like a slight pivot and I yeah. eased my family into it. Like, I'll well, still be taking all the pre-med classes. I'm just going to... Focus on the neuroscience aspect. So yeah, was he a stroke survivor? Is that no? He was a motorcycle. Oh, he was a motorcycle. So they do this though. Was am I right in that they do this with stroke patients that they almost relocate the motor control, or if that part of the brain has been damaged, you can kind of that's right use another part of your brain to do motor control. Exactly. I mean, you can. It kind of spreads into these other areas. Yeah. So that they take over, and that's what's so amazing. I mean, this aspect of neuroplasticity is fascinating. That. 
our brain can actually accommodate. But the key is that you have to exercise to actually engage those functions to have the brain start responding in a way that yeah. makes it more permanent. I was just reading a book, I can't remember which one, but it was really breaking down the complexity of you moving things. Mm. And it is, as someone who understands mechanics quite well, like, yes, so if, if we were a robot, to be able to do all these tiny little fine-tuned movements, you're talking about like millions of neurons firing, pulling on nine different tendons. Like, it is so complex to move the way we do, and you're not born knowing how to do much of that. And then your brain slowly through rote learns that, right? I find it's, that insane when you really think about the complexity of it. Well, I just had this thought last night, which is so funny, because I study attention, so everything I'm really focusing on is the explicit, the apparent to you, the voluntary in some sense. And I was just, I had this thought when I was just turning in the middle of the night, like, what made me turn? Mm. I wasn't thinking, oh, I need to turn. I just turned. Right. And like, we do that kind of stuff all the time. Mm. And even our little hand gestures, et cetera, we're not thinking about yeah. these aspects of our functioning. Well, and the, the turning over in the middle of the night, that fascinates me too in the same way that driving fascinates me, right? Like, they, largely they say your driving's happening in your subconscious. Like, you're not actively controlling the vehicle when you're driving down the highway. You'd be exhausted by the time you got there. Like, that's all happening on autopilot while you think of whatever you want to think of. or like Sometimes, but now think about, this is the tricky part about driving. Okay. There's so much of it that is something called procedural memory. Like it's basically learned to the point where you don't need attention. And that's sort of the job of the brain. Offload everything so you can actually keep this precious resource because it's limited. Uh -huh. We don't have much of it. So let's keep that available. So when you were starting to learn how to drive, yeah. and I know from my children learning more recently, oh no, it's 100% attention. Yeah. And if you didn't have it, you won't learn. But yeah. then at some point, it gets offloaded to these other systems. And just like if I tell you right now, if I ask you, you know, Monica, can you just read off the, the keyboard right to left for me? It's like, can you do that? No. Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> but then if I say, put your hands and like, now probably do it. Yeah. you could do it. So uh -huh. it's there, but it's not explicit to us. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that makes me think of kind of the transition you make when you are into motorcycling on the track. When you're first there, it is like, it's so terrifying and break here and do this and turn and make sure you're angry. But there becomes a point where I just think faster into this turn, slower out, then faster out. And like, I you feel it. Yeah. I'm not yeah. really aware of all the shifting, the braking, all this stuff. I'm now just experiencing what it's like to go around the track. I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating yeah, what the brain can kind of do in, in totally, the background. Flexibly. But that's the thing about driving. So if everything's cool, it's not too trafficy, nothing, there's no hailstorm. Yes, I think you can offload a lot of that to the default, already procedurally well-honed machinery of the brain. But as soon as you need to actually pay attention, then you got to flip it back on. Right. And we do. And we do. Yeah. We can do this seamlessly, right? So Yeah. I don't know if you read this. There was some article about the, the Bay Bridge had been shut down for a while, and there was one lane in particular, and a couple of people drove off the Bay oh, Bridge. No. And it only happened in the morning. They were oh, saying no. that in the oh, morning people are they're doing the most of that, right? Like where it's, they're not paying attention at all in the morning on that commute to work. Oh. They're out to lunch. Yeah. Whereas maybe even at... When they get off, they're excited to go where they're going, and they're a little more, I don't know. They but got to deal with people and cars, but. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Okay, so that makes sense for how you got interested. And I just want to, before we go further, what's interesting, because we love identity on this show, had I not read your name, right? We just met somewhere. You're straight Chicago. Like, I would be able to guess within 30 Chicago. seconds that you're from Chicago, that you yeah. are a woman from Chicago. Oh, cool. Based yeah. on? My accent, I my just demeanor. know. Do you know, Robbie? I mean, you just, yeah. 
Yeah, there's yeah. a toughness. There's a little bit toughness. of a shortness. There's an accent. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. That's you can, funny because yeah, I lived there for eighteen years. But yeah, I guess I know. I lived there for eighteen years. So go fuck yourself. Yeah, you know, maybe uh, that's more New there. York. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know, but 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 it is on the spectrum. It's, it's further yeah, along it on the spectrum than Minnesota is. Let's say that's right. And it's yeah. funny because I do feel like a sense of familiarity with people like from the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even Michigan Detroit is close women are yeah. very similar as well. Yeah, I was yeah. like, you feel just like, oh, I get these people. Like, I dated a gal for nine years from Washington, a state, and I think on her first trip back to Michigan for, like, the summer, I was explaining to her, like, you know, you're going to see a lot of fights, <laughs> like, at the bars and stuff. Like, it's a pretty, it's different than California. Like, I just need to warn you, it's a little hectic. You go drinking, you're generally going to see a fight one a night. She's like, that can't possibly be true. Sure enough, first bar I take her to, the Bachelor in Kego Harbor. We're sitting in there, and two women dressed to the fucking nines. I mean, their hair's up. They've got earrings up. They've put so much effort in this. You just hear from across the fuck you, baby. And they run oh, at no. each other. People are grabbing hair. And Brie goes, well, first of all, I didn't think you were even telling the truth. Certainly, I did not think women would be brawling in the bar. <laughs> it's not the image I would have in mind. <laughs> Okay, so when you're going to college and you're becoming a doctor or you're earning your PhD, what do you think is going to be the application of this study? Like, do you already think it's going to be about attention? Oh, in grad school, I knew I was going to study attention. Oh, so the other okay. thing I didn't tell you is that in addition to this sort of fascination regarding the brain early on, I used to just read psychology textbooks. Sure. And this is another one of those things where I just didn't feel like a lot of my friends. I was just like, no, this is, I want to, and philosophy. And it was just a, that was my thing. And at my, my dear mother, I remember when I was like in 10th grade, I'm like, I want to take a moral psychology class at the university of Chicago, but you're going to have to take me every week. And she's like, all right, but it's Hyde Park. She's not going to just let me walk around campus. So she'd sit there for the like three hour class wow. just to let me take oh. it. And I don't think I've learned much. I and mean, I didn't understand what was going, going sure, on. It was sure. like a graduate level. Like how old were you? Probably sophomore, junior year. You can do that? It's a continuing yes. studies kind of thing. Uh, yeah, but they, like they, you're auditing almost You're auditing, but no, it's actually for people that are not active uh, undergrads or oh, okay. students. But I just, now when I look back at that, I'm like, what a weird thing to do. But it all kind of culminated. And at that point, when I was an undergrad, I, I really felt like, okay, for sure I want to study the brain. I started doing research in the topic yeah. of attention. Mom and dad are probably the most beautiful people in the world. We're not going to say one disparaging thing about them. But was either parent's attention a little hard to get? Oh, well, my father passed away when I was quite young. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But no, I wouldn't say okay, no. Okay, but if you meet my okay. husband, you'll be like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and we met during undergrad. And I don't know. It's funny because for sure... He is my constant case study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, it was funny. When I first started out, I was interested in research in this topic called theory of mind, which maybe you've talked about uh, for various experts that have come through this. The thing that a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of autistic people can't do, sort of understand what other people's minds are doing, et cetera. And so I was in this lab, and it was interesting. I thought it was very interesting. But at one point, I go to talk to the professor about wanting to apply to grad school. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he says to me is, women in your culture don't typically go on to have professional lives. Are, are you serious about this? Oh, wow. And this is like <laughs> That's also in the, it's, it's not, none of it's oh true. Oh, my God. That's and in I was the like, 90s, too. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it really so turned me on. But I was really fortunate because at that same, that same semester, I was in this a course on perception and attention. And I was already starting to really like it. And it was really cool because the professor was a total badass. I mean, uh -huh. she was teaching 
probably at that point, by the end of the semester, she was like fully nine months pregnant. Oh, wow. And I just thought, I remember really feeling like, you can do that? Like, it was the first time I had a female professor. Right. And she was amazing. And she happened to be pregnant. And it really gave me like this whole different view of what life could be. And Mm -hmm. so then, of course, I said, I'd like to work in your lab. And that really shifted things for me. Yeah. I just read a highly offensive book that was literally in 2021 making some kind of gender claim that women probably on their own, all things being equal, will not be drawn to those. And I'm like, how on earth are you undervaluing exactly what happened to you and happens to nearly every woman in the 90s? They are so strongly urged not to pursue that. There's nobody that represents you teaching the class. Like, oh, I found it so offensive. Yeah. Uh, And it's like what, Monica, you were saying about, like, you know, people about age and stuff like that. It's the same thing. It's like when somebody thinks of a professor, they don't think of somebody that looks like me. Right, right. And it's non-trivial. Like, even probably in my own mind, I'm like, am I really a professor? I don't have the tweed jacket and the, you know, the elbow thing. So it's a very interesting thing of how much— the pictures they hang in the classroom. Oh, yeah. You grow up looking at all mm-hmm. these wonderful men. Yeah. They're so good and brave. They're really so, great. So diverse. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so diverse. Some are uh, under 5'7", some are over 5'7". Okay, so your book is called Peak Mind. Find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. First and foremost, I watched your TED Talk. I could get on my knees and kiss your feet for <laughs> dispelling this stupid fucking rumor that to me always... Red is bogus. And you heard it nonstop growing up. We only use 10% of our brains. Mm, I've heard that, yes. Now, it did lead to one of the funniest lines in a comedy of all time in Wedding Crashers. Owen Wilson says, you know, they say we only use 10% of our brains, but I think we only use 10% of our hearts. So funny. (laughs) What a fucking line. Okay, but that's hogwash, right? Absolutely. Oh, thank God. Thanks God you're here to straighten this <laughs> Tell us how much we use of our brain. All of it. Okay, that makes sense because I've never met it. anyone that's using 9% of their heart or 8% no, of their I mean, liver. Why the fuck would we have an organ we're using 10% exactly. of? Exactly. Everything yeah. that we are as a human system, so energetically costly, there's no way we're going to not use it. But this is what's interesting about the brain is that it's not that the whole thing is active in some sense, meaning neurons aren't firing equally in every part of the brain. Mm -hmm. But we really have to get out of this view that specific regions are doing anything. Like, it really is the entirety of the brain and its configuration moment by moment that matters. Yeah, like works holistically, right? It works holistically, dynamically. Yeah. Help us understand, because we're getting closer and closer to actually being able to see what's going on, I think. We're approaching that phase. But for so long, we have such limited access to the brain that what we're really studying is is a lot of correlation and maybe not causality, mm-hmm. maybe not this, right? Like, so what has been the evolution of how we're even knowing what the brain does? First, we just have this big, bogus, convoluted chunk of gray goo. <laughs> and we're like, everything happens in here, huh? And then a guy gets a railroad spike through his forehead and we find out, oh, the prefrontal cortex is the thing that predicts wow, the future, right? Like these Phineas little- Gage, these, yeah. <laughs> What's his name? Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage, wonderful. But yes, so by pure accident, we're finding out, oh, I guess that thing is predicting the future or letting you model the future. And so it's not been the easiest thing for us to study. No, but we have come a long way since then. Yeah. So now we went to the point of, yes, we had to rely on accidents of nature, whether they were physical injury or internal injury like stroke or tumor. And that gave us a pretty good idea of basically how things are organized. Like, oh, okay, the back of the brain's vision, side, probably memory and and hearing, front, decision-making, et cetera. And then somewhere deep inside, something to do with emotion. So we had a basic sense of the orientation and 
the structural assignments to these different regions, but we didn't know a lot more than that. Yeah. Can I ask really quick yeah. before we move on? When did we come up with the notion that, oh, the internal brain is more the primitive brain and that basically the evolution of the brain or the development or adaptation is really kind of going outward? Like, that's a weird concept yeah. to me to f have oh, figured it's out. So, very cool. Yeah. How did we? I mean, I think it's that. just looking at sort of the, the evolutionary biology and yeah. like looking at what structures were present in different kinds of organisms to see at what point things start proliferating. And that's where a lot of misinformation happens to people like, oh, we're just like a lizard brain. Or you might hear that a lot. Your survival brain and your thinking brain. And that's, monkey brain. That's, monkey well, monkey brain, brain is that's a different right. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really, that's more metaphorical. Like it jumps around and stuff like that. And we can definitely talk about that. But really what I'm talking about is when people think that there's multiple brains in your brain. And no, it's not the way it works. And we're not a lizard brain with a bunch of frontal lobes on top. We're not. Right. I mean, the branching of the whole way brain development happened, all, the entirety started shifting. So even the more like instinctual areas of the brain that are fight or flight and all these things, they evolved to a capacity far beyond that. And then other things happened, basically. It's not like we got this little walnut in there. That a that a lemur had, and then we grew everything on top of no. that. Okay, okay, like you're not a lizard brain. Uh, anyway, that's so, a Chicago in her. You're not a lizard brain. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. come on, man. <laughs> okay, so what I was going to say is, then what happened is essentially, we started being able to look at the brain and it's in terms of its structure and function using different tools. So, you've probably heard of functional MRI, yeah, right? FMRI. So. So fMRI is great because you can put the person in the scanner, you have them do various tasks, and all of a sudden you can see various regions activated. Uh -huh. And the very first probably decade, I mean, to tell you how new this thing is, like when I was in grad school, I remember I was one of the grad students that was voluntold to go check out the MRI <laughs> scanners, get uh -huh. yourself in there. And I'm very claustrophobic, which I discovered then. Yeah, yeah. But what we were doing initially was just kind of this confirmatory stuff. Like, oh yeah, it is the case that the back of the brain is vision and the sides of the brain are having to do these other functions. And then the thing I do in my lab, in addition to functional MRI, is EEG recording. And that was great because- How does that work? EEG is looking at the direct electrical activity. Direct meaning it's actually neurons firing. Right, right, right. So okay. functional MRI is- It's like measuring electrical activity. It is. Okay. It's measuring when groups of neurons fire together, they're like a little battery in your head, and then the voltage can- propagate to the scalp and you can pick it up with electrodes on the scalp. Yeah. So it's very cool because it's like basically we're picking up the little batteries that are kind of coming on and off. Yes. So, and that gives you really great timing information, like millisecond timing information. Functional MRI, actually, you need blood flow to be able to look at it. It's looking at blood oxygenation levels, which is very slow, like on the order of, you know, a second to three seconds. Okay. And the reason blood flow matters is because when neurons are active, they need more blood. So there's like an overabundance of blood that goes there. There's a difference in the ratio of the oxygenated blood. And yeah. then that tells you, oh, there must be neural activity happening. And just here. to put that in layman's terms, you're talking <laughs> about like the difference between hydraulics and electricity. So turn your hose on, wait how long it comes out oh, the, I love the hose that. or turn a light switch on. It's instantaneous. That's what you're- You got it. Okay. That's, that's really good. So anyway, I just want to fast forward to where we're at now, which I think is a, just a much better place. And I think you're right. We are getting closer to knowing- something about the brain. Mm -hmm. It was kind of funny. My son asked me recently, like, do you think you're going to understand the way the brain works in your lifetime? And I was like, well, probably not. I mean, sure. I think, and then he said, do you think humanity will ever understand the way the brain works? And then I was kind of like, probably not. <laughs> I mean, yeah. because we will be stuck with ourselves looking at ourselves. Yeah. A computer might understand our brain at some point, but I don't know that we will. 
But then, of course, his next response, because he's 19, was, well, then why are you bothering? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Well, that's like a, an astronomy question. Like, what, what are we doing? Yeah, it is. Well, yeah. he's, a, he's a mathematician and uh-huh. computer science guy. But anyway, okay, so now we're at the point where we know that these different parts work together. But this is the really cool part that we're at right now. We're getting to the point of understanding that this is a very dynamic and interactive aspect of the way it works. So now we see that, oh, actually there's a series of networks. And the networks are nodes, meaning chunks of neurons that are in different parts of the brain, like a subway system. And when one network is active, all the neurons in that network are kind of humming together and they're actively suppressing the other networks. Mm-hmm. And all consciousness or our experience may be is just which network is more prominent. Yeah, so tell me if this analogy holds up. So, like, the system can run three light bulbs, and there's a hundred in there. So when it turns two or three on, it's not going to give electricity to those other parts. Exactly. It goes back to your 10% thing. So it's not that we only use 10% of our brains. It's that there's an active war, and the thing that allows us to have any distinct experience in any moment is the inhibition of things that are not most prominent right now. Yeah, when we move, what's happening? So if I move my hand up, all the neurons and neural networks that are responsible for moving my hand down are actively getting suppressed. Like, mm. you're doing this, don't do that. And so in disorders like Parkinson's, unfortunately, that battle gets messed up. And now all of a sudden you don't know which way to move. It's firing both sides of it. Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. Okay, when did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Well, let's just say I'm a weirdo and I want to be messy and see what you're up to, like who you're hanging with. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. I knew you did that. (laughs) No, I did not do that. (laughs) I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends. And then use that money any place Apple Pay is accepted. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Monica, please keep it in the chat. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. We are supported by BetterHelp. It feels like a lot has happened this year. It's barely even summer. We went to India for By George. We sure did. Lots to process already. Yeah, but even with so much going on, it's important to slow down. Take a minute to reflect on yourself and make adjustments. And if you need a little help with that, I can't recommend therapy enough. We are both in therapy. We are. We proselytize all the time. Talk about it every day. Couldn't function without it. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient and flexible. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire. Plus, you can switch therapists whenever for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DAX. We are supported by Uber Eats. Spring is here, and now you can get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry, no. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets, product availability may vary by region. See app for details. 
what's happening in a seizure? Because I have, okay, I've had. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's easy, buddy. That was a funny joke. I've had two and diagnosed with epilepsy. Ah. And I have a neurologist, and I've never really thought to ask yeah. fully, like, what is actually happening in there? Yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, you've probably heard this term. It's an electrical storm. Yeah. It's like the electrical activity. And remember how electricity works. It proliferates. Yeah. Again, these normal inhibitory things aren't happening. So it gets overly activated. And then because there's some epileptogenic tissue, let's just put it that way. Essentially, the things that should be suppressed aren't. And that storm is kind of proliferating. The body is not functioning properly. There's like violent movement, et cetera. And is it brought on because you're a bad uh, older sister? Usually, yeah. Oh, okay. That's the, that's that no, but this is when yeah. I was when I was in grad school. We had the wildest case. It was, it was a woman that had epilepsy. Now, the the hard part about epilepsy, just like you were saying, you know, how does it actually work? It's hard to know how it works. Mm. Yeah. Because you're going to capture people when they're not going to have seizures on demand. That's the whole thing. Because I was supposed to get an EEG, and then eventually my neurologist was like, you know what, we don't need to do that. And mine happened uh-huh. at night, and I've only uh-huh. had two. Right. And they were a year apart that we know of. That we know of. So he was like, the chances of us catching one are so low. It'd be like waiting just... for a lightning storm in LA. Exactly. It once yeah. a year. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, there's just no point, and we'll just put you on the medication, and that's kind of yeah. what we'll do. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes intractable epilepsy, where it's really the person cannot function, yeah. then they'll implant electrodes, and you'll have an entire like grid of electrodes so that you can kind of pick it up. So I have an uncle who had epilepsy to the degree where it was it was unmanageable with medication, and they did the procedure where they cut a corridor in his brain, oh. so the two areas that kept misfiring couldn't communicate anymore. Wow, you have a split brain uncle? Yes. That's amazing. That's a very unusual thing to have happen, but yeah. And I was going to write a script about it because one of the warnings that was given to he and his wife, my aunt, was he may experience a radical shift in personality after this procedure. Mm. And I thought that is one of the most bizarre side effects anyone could ever be given. And then my idea for a movie was a guy stuck in his life and he gets that procedure and he doesn't actually have a radical shift of personality, but he decides to have a... Oh, that's kind of neat, right? A do over. That's amazing. The, one of the very first patients I ever worked with was a split brain patient. And that's what they call it was split like brain. A, oh. Yeah, when oh. the corpus callosum, the bridge between the two hemispheres is cut. Oh. And, it's, and it's because the electrical storm, you know, unfortunately, when it starts, it can actually go over the bridge to the other side. Then you got a grand mal seizure. I mean, you got yeah. no, a yeah. lot of yeah. trouble. So I hope his epilepsy is better. Uh, and, uh, to my knowledge, and <laughs> can I tell you, this is the most amazing story. The incident that precluded the decision finally to go this way is he was in Chicago on business and he was at the McDonald's drive-thru and he looked at the woman to get the bag of food and she said, oh my God, are you okay? And he said, what, am I, what do you mean? And she said, sir, you're bleeding. And he looked in the rear mirror, he's bleeding, the windshield's smashed. He has rolled his car, it landed on the so wheels upset. and then drove into McDonald's and ordered. Had no clue any of this happened. Oh. Oh. Isn't that insane? Can you imagine? That's like That's a movie to be insane. like looking Crazy. at a McDonald's employee oh. and then look in the rearview mirror and see that you've been in a horrendous oh, accident. Oh my goodness. Oh. Can't believe he didn't know. Because once you come to, you do feel crazy. I've witnessed his, amazingly, at my birthday party at a oh. Japanese steakhouse and you know, all the things are going off and oh. everything. And he was like grabbing his plate and then he had a seizure and then 
it kind of went everywhere, and then he came out of it, and you could see he had no, there was no, no it's not awareness. like he, he was not making any memories during that period. So no, for no, him, it don't. was just like he was watching, and then he was watching all this other stuff that happened in between. He was unaware of. Right. Wow. Yeah. So let me tell you about this weird case. Yeah. So, yeah. so that is the tricky part. I mean, we've learned a lot, but it's usually through these implanted electrodes, et cetera. Or you end up somehow, you have the cap on them, the electrode cap, and then you can pick it up. So, And then there are some like smaller ones where you might not see it, and it's it looks like a mess. Like It looks mm-hmm. like a little storm is, is brewing. But this particular patient, I don't know how they found her, but she could have a seizure on command. <gasps> oh, no. Wow. And, and this is the wild part. Whoa. The thing that drove her seizure was a particular part of like a Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> Oh Are you serious? Gosh. And at first you're just like, what? But they did the analysis of the frequency spectrum of the sounds then, and that was the exact part of her, what's called the tonotopic map, the, the frequency array in your temporal lobe, that was problematic. She could never wow. listen to a classic rock station while driving. It would be too <laughs> hard. That's sort of how they yeah. found out. But this is the really interesting part, right? Once they figured out what it was, because this is where functional MRI is so great. It's like, wow. it wasn't great that they could get her to have a seizure, but as yeah. soon as they saw it, they knew exactly what tissue to go in and remove. Right. Yeah. And do they and do they cauterize it? Like, do they make a note out of it? What do they do? Do they? Oh, they, yeah. They just have to go in and, yeah, okay. take it out, scoop it out like a, you oh, know, like okay. any kind of. Wow. Yeah, like a melon. But, melon. Yeah, kind of. When you yeah. can localize it, then you yeah. don't have to do something as severe as uh, what your uncle had to do. Yeah. But. Oh, wow. That's wild. Now, I was aware of the visual component that like strobing lights often will induce an yeah. epileptic seizure. I did not know it could be auditory. That's, yeah. that's oh, it could wild. be any. It could be any part of the brain that has this sort of property of the, like I said, epileptogenic tissue. Yeah. It's just something's kind of off with the coordination. I'd like to but open up your brain and just yeah, let's check it look out. around and just see if I see anything visually that looks like. It's so weird because mine happen at night. No. And so like what is happening at night well, that's triggering? A lot, right? Because your entire sleep cycle is a series of different frequencies. Yeah. As you're going in and out of various frequencies, it could be that there's a particular shift that might have kind of. Yeah, in. he did say nocturnal seizures normally happen when you're coming in or out of a sleep. Right. I'd woken up and gone in the bathroom, and then I had it pretty soon after that. Uh, so I'm sure it was going back into sleep. Right. I guess. Oh, well. So I know this is like so funny because this is not what I really study. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know all about it. Yeah, those are the best interviews. You get someone like as an expert on uh, neurobiology and they tell you about diesel mechanics. That's kind of like our sweet spot. (laughs) But, you know, I wanted to just say something because you brought up this thing and it's like kind of my pet peeve, this 10% thing, but it's also this notion of like a modular brain. And most people think when it comes to neuroscience that, well, most people can't understand it. It's probably really complicated. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think we have a responsibility to let people know like how this thing actually works. Mm-hmm. Just like everything you guys do on this show, it's like up level yeah. people's understanding. So it just reminds me of like, I've been a professor for a long time. My At one point, my then four or five-year-old came to the lab and I have like a little plastic brain and she's like sitting on the ground and I'm doing something on my computer and she starts taking the little brain model apart. So I can barely kind of see her because I'm at the desk and she like raises up a part and she's like, what does this do? And then I'm yeah. like, eh, it helps you see. What does this do? And then she's like, so we're going, kind of going through the pieces. And then I'm like, this is terrible. I'm doing the exact thing I right. don't want to do. The brain functions together. So I like 
get up, sit on the ground. I was like, okay, let's, and I'm like, why do I feel compelled to do this? But I actually think it's a, probably a good thing. And I think that actually is an indication of how anybody can understand things if we explain it in a way that- Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. Makes yeah, sense. They have, so, they have friends that are like, will they understand? I'm like, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I said to her, she was, she's a gymnast. She was, at that point, she was, she was just getting into gymnastics, but really nailing her cartwheels and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was like, what parts of your body do you need to do a cartwheel? And she said, well, right-handed or left-handed? <laughs> it's uh-huh. like, I don't left-handed. Yeah. And then she's showing me, like, well, first you need this, and then and your hand, and then your arm, and then it has to move in the right way. Yeah. And if it doesn't move in the right timing, then it's not going to be a good cartwheel. And I was like, that's how your brain works. None of these pieces work alone. Right, a hand doesn't do a cartwheel. They all have to work together, and the timing between how they talk to each other has to be just right, or else you're not going to get a cartwheel. Yeah. And then she kind of got it that, oh, I mean— who knows if that will make any big difference in her life, but I think it's more the reality of how okay. things happen. Well, you can scale that up. We have a predisposition to want to be modular, to be categorical, exactly. to, to make ourselves different from each other, to make ourselves different from the planet we live on. All these things are exactly. like, yeah, there's something weirdly innate. And in it's that. somehow simplifying it, right, mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense. But And when you say, like, oh, functional di- brain dynamics, people are like, what are you talking about? But that's all we're talking about, a series of networks that kind of coordinate their activity. yeah. Okay, so you you do these neat (laughs) studies where people are in the EEG and you show people a photograph and the photograph is actually two photographs. So there's a photograph of a woman's face and there's a photograph of the front of a Victorian style house or colonial house, I don't know, (laughs) old school house. Mm -hmm. And at first glance, you really can't tell what you're looking at. They're on top of each other? They're on top of each other. And they're faint, right? So both are semi-translucent. So at any rate, explain then what happens in in the machine. The whole point of this study was to figure out what attention does to perception. Mm. And the notion is that the point of attention is to privilege some information over other information. That's why our brain developed and evolutionarily advantaged us to have it. Mm-hmm. And that was because the brain has got a giant problem, which is there's so much more out there than it can process. that It's got to subsample bits and pieces. So if that's the case, wherever it's paying attention more information should come in. So it was a, basically a test of that. Right. Can we give a concrete example? So I'm looking at you. Within my periphery, there's a refrigerator with all these drinks. There's yeah. a million drinks on there. I could look at those. There's sound panels around you. There's a smell in the air. There's a noise outside. There's all this shit. And I actually have to pick what thing I'm going to focus on. That's my attention, yeah? Yeah. And whatever it is that you pay attention to, you get privileged access to that information. And the way I like to talk about it, it's like if you are in a dark room or in a outside when it's dark out and you've got a flashlight. Mm-hmm. Attention is like a flashlight, okay. at least this one system. Wherever it is that you direct it, you're going to get information out of there. And yeah. everything else is dark around it. Right. So same idea. And the reason you could even say, oh, there's a refrigerator over here and Misha's sitting over here is because you know this room because you've subsampled parts of this room. But in right. this moment, really your perception, at least can, I can see your eyes looking at me, yeah. is on me. And for you, it's probably more distracting in this room than it is for me because I've filed all this into white noise in my head. I mean, right, like this stuff's all novel to you. Like you could be interested yeah, to see this dog. Yeah, I could get pulled around, and but I did that before you guys got here. Oh, okay, <laughs> I'm you, good. you, I'm you good. settled yourself. Now, I do think perception would be worth defining with some concrete examples. Well, I think that the easiest way to put perception is it's the ability to take an initial, let's say, envision visual information. Okay. So it's not really about elaborating that or telling a story about it or imagining it, though imagining it actually activates the same regions. Very first stages of information processing in the brain. Okay. So light, dark, et cetera. 
So this face house overlay, right? You've got, that's what they're called, just face scene overlay. We take these two images and then we use this very handy property of the brain, which is that the brain happens to have, and we know this from other studies, essentially a face detector in these early visual areas that happens about 170 milliseconds. So that's 170 thousandths of a second Mm -hmm. after you see a face. So every time we see a face, and that's the perceptual aspect, very fast, initial stages. Can I geek out? That's yeah. a product of us being a highly social animal with like multi-member groups, right? That's why we, I mean yeah. we're super advantaged, yeah. right? They say it's that so that's, important. That's one of the main theories in anthropology of why we develop such great intelligence is just managing all these relationships and being able to identify these different faces, which are very hard to identify. We don't think they are, but they are. Yeah, yeah. Very. I mean, we have a hard time doing this with computer algorithms. Right. Right. Well, just right. recently, can we have face configuration and and they fail when we put on a mask? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. So anyway, so we knew that we could put a face on somebody in the screen when somebody has this brain cap on and we could pick up this N170. So that we knew. Our question was, if you show somebody a face and something else at the same time and you tell them what to pay attention to, could you move around the amplitude of that component? Mm-hmm. So I'll just tell you what we found. So what we did is we'd show these series of these overlay images, face, scene, and then we'd ask them, on certain trials, pay attention to the face and tell me something about the face. Is it male, female, happy, mm. whatever? So that way, when they responded, we'd know they're paying attention to the right thing. Right. And then other blocks of trials, we'd say, look at the other image, the scene. Tell us, is it indoor or outdoor? Right. So this was the front of the house. This is the this front case. of the house. You'd yeah. say, okay, it's outdoor. Yeah. So that way, we know that they're doing what we said. We can confirm that. And now we look at the brain and we say, what happens to that N170 when they are paying attention to the face versus paying attention to the scene? Because what's hitting the retina is the same. Right, right. Mm. right? That the thing's only static. Thing, only thing that's changing is how you're directing your attention to it. And yeah. then you couldn't even say how you're focusing because that's not true either. Your focus, it's not even like you're changing your focus per se. I mean, we can discuss what focus means at that point, but it's really, I would say if you want to say focus is attention, then they're focusing on the house. I guess I mean, if you had two objects that were staggered in distance, yeah. you would actually have to have a mechanical process at some point. You'd have to dilate a pupil or something, right? To actually focus on the other object that was in a different plane. So that mechanical process you would take mo- some amount of time. You mean like moving your eyes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 But these things are in the same plane is what eyes. I'm trying exactly. to say. Exactly. Yeah, they're yeah, in yeah. the same physical location on the screen. Their eyes are steady. The only thing that's changing is what they're paying attention to. And we check for eye movements. For a long time, people were like, oh, they're moving their eyes slightly. No, no, we had electrodes around their eyes. We know they weren't moving their eyes. The only thing that's changing was what they paid attention to. And what we found was that the N170 was larger when you paid attention to the face versus when you paid attention to the house. Mm-hmm. So that gap, that increase in amplitude is the power of attention on perception. The power of what you're deciding to look at and then what you see. And that's why we say things like, I was saying a moment ago, it's like a flashlight in a darkened room. Mm -hmm. It is crisper. It's clearer. You get more information out of it. Right. And now that process we can see in any modality. It doesn't have to be visual. It could be auditory. You know, yeah. it could be conceptual. I, it could be memory. But it was, at the, it was a hard test to see, is it the case that this higher level thing, we say, pay attention, is changing these very initial aspects of our basic perception. Does this differ from like the famous silhouette of 
two candle stands. Illusion. And, yeah. Like, are we doing the same thing in that moment? Yeah. Where, like, we're either going to decide to see a face or two candlesticks. Do you know that mm -mm. famous? Wait, magic eyes? Or like, They're have you seen like eyes. the duck rabbit illusion? That's like, it's like this weird looking image. And if you focus on some parts of it, you can see it's a duck. And other parts, it's a rabbit. These are visual illusions, but it's. But the very famous one is like, like it's a candle stick uh -huh. you know, that you put candles in. Uh -huh. And you can see that if you want, or you can quite clearly see it's a man and a woman's face. Oh, uh, I want to look the, it up. the silhouette of it is. And exactly. I was just wondering if that's It's very similar, similar okay. right? It's very similar. Now you're doing it based on not what I'm telling you to pay attention to, but some representation you have of what silhouettes are. That you're holding in your mind and that pops out to you more. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, but the kind of point of why I even described it in that in that TED Talk was because I wanted to make the point of how powerful this is. It's starting from this very, very early process mm -hmm. um, as soon as I, I show you something. But now let's extrapolate that. Like, how does that have to do with, did you find it? Yeah, yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I kind of didn't describe it correctly. It's actually some kind of a chalice in the middle. It's true, yeah, yeah. It's like a big cup. <laughs> okay, yeah. Or something you would drink. Uh, the Holy Grail might be the Holy Grail. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, I see it again. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're back. We're back. So sorry. Talk about it. your topic right now, attention and perception. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the reason I wanted to describe that study was because it can extrapolate to so many aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. And the work that I do now with high-stress groups like soldiers and firefighters and elite athletes, like this aspect of their attentional ability as such a, it can be life or death for many. Yeah. So I think what you found in this, right, is that 50% of the time people's brains are off gallivanting around. They're, they're just wandering. Yeah. All of us, like half of our attention is sometimes wandering. Is that? Yeah. yeah. So this goes to actual connected back to perception in a second. So the statistic is, yeah, about 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not in the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Like, and how do we know that? Well, you recruit a bunch of people. You say, at any time of day, I'm going to ping you on your cell phone. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Will you do it? Sure. Mm -hmm. You ask them questions like, what are you doing right now? And they can even choose, like, I'm reading a book or I'm having a conversation. Second question, where is your attention right now? Only half the time would they say their attention's actually in that. Right. So then we went from like, okay, that's real world. That's fine. Maybe you're distractible in the real world. Now let's bring people into the laboratory and have them pay attention to a task in mm -hmm. the lab. That's all they're doing. Probe them every now and then. Where was your attention right before I asked you this question? Half the time. They're not there. Yeah. Then you pay them. You're like, I'm going to pay you to stay on task. Still can't do it. And even one of them, right, I believe, was you're going to hit a button every time you see a face. Don't hit the button when the face is upside oh, down. Yeah. And it's such a boring experiment that the face goes upside down. People just hit the button. Like, they're now out oh, to lunch. They, they, they have enough committed to notice something happened. That's about it. Yeah. But they're off doing and another thing. And we did that on purpose because it was a tricky space. Like, how do you have people come into the lab and see if, make the mind wander? Yeah. And we were like, all you have to do is bore people. Yeah. People will yeah. mind wander happily yeah. if you bore them. So, yeah, so that's I'd where that- I'd argue show them Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Lord of the Rings <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> Just lost half our eyes. Yeah, at least. <laughs> on that. So that is what we formally call mind wandering. Yeah. And it's having these off-task thoughts. And the question is, for the kind of groups that we're working with, what are the consequences of doing that? And so if you do the same sort of thing, that actually that experiment that you were just describing, what we did is we put the cap on them. We looked at the N170 again. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, sit here. 
every time you see a face, press the button unless it's upside down. And those upside down faces happen only 5% of the time. Some people just press, they default, they're now making their grocery list or whatever. Yeah. And then we wanted to see what happens to the N170 when they say they were off task. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that just like that attention bumped it up when we paid attention to the face versus the scene, if you are distracted, mind wandering, the N170 goes down. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. again, it's hitting the eyeballs. It's perceived, but that perception is biased by your attention. Right. Mm. And it, so I would imagine it's slowing that down, like your reaction time, is it? It's definitely sh- slowing down your reaction time. It's uh-huh. definitely making you worse. Your performance is yeah, worse. Yeah. But your perceptual inputs are dull. It's like you're not seeing as crisply. Right. It's almost like the flashlight isn't really on, right? Right. It's like you're missing it. The point is wherever your attention goes is what you're privileging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this book, I, I actually trying to get people to understand that that means that whatever you pay attention to is your life. I mean, mm-hmm. that is your life. That is what you're experiencing yeah. moment by moment. And so it's probably pretty important to try to understand where you're paying attention moment by moment. Okay, great. So I only have like a couple thoughts throughout all of this that I maybe wanted to challenge or I'm not sure how I feel about. And one is the kind of pattern, I'm going to make a really bold tie in here, but this notion that you've observed it and that somehow in the observation of it, we've detected a pathology as opposed to like, yeah, that's how brains work. No reason to now feel guilty that you're doing it wrong or you could be doing it better. And I think that is a part of our innate evolutionary pull towards religion. We're like, we accept this notion of original sin. We feel guilty. We have this bizarre notion that we're always doing everything wrong. We could be doing it better. We suck, blah, blah, blah. So it's like we observe half the time you guys are out to lunch. Then the, the next thought is like, we got to correct that. I don't know about that. That's oh, what I want to oh, I would agree with you. The only reason I'm bringing this up is it's happening. So be aware that's happening. Sure. The next piece is under certain circumstances, threatening, fear-inducing, negative mood, that number goes up. And if you've got this number going up and you're in a consequential situation, it doesn't have to be life or death in a war zone. You're looking at your kid and you're actually trying to see the expression on his or her face. That's consequential if you miss that. Yeah. So that's my point. Like maybe pick the moments where you decided these are high value moments and those are moments I want to be able to control my attention. Here's the problem. Most of us, we don't by default have a lot of capacity to know where our attention is moment by moment. So most of the times when people say, yeah, I'm not here, the next question we ask is, how aware are you of where your attention Mm -hmm. is? No idea. Correct. You're just kind of blowing around the ocean and now I'm back, I'm reading this sentence, now I'm back over here. I mean, if you think about, you know, in our own lives, like usually if we are lost in thought, it takes somebody a few times, are you listening? Are you there? Oh, yeah. To like clue us in to like, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not here. I have a few of those in my life. (laughs) (laughs) You're just staring and you're like, you're not, I can see you're not taking any of this on. Can I just ask one quick question? Because we're already on that topic. Because I guess my pushback for it was a little bit of, I think what we're generally doing in those moments is we're modeling out the future. Uh Uh-huh. We're going, oh, we're going to go to the grocery store, but I also got to pick up my medicine. So I should probably stop there first because it would be inefficient for me to drive there, back, there, back. I'll go in a circle, right? We're generally kind of modeling out the next step in our life, which I think is probably a a good thing quite often, right? I mean, Very good thing. Okay, okay. And yeah, that is what we formally call it. We call it mental time travel. Right. In AA, they call it future surfing. Future surfing is, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? So it's so productive and it's so good for our 
humanness. Like we need to be able to plan for the uh, future. Yeah. You know, we fast forward all the time. We can also reverse, reflect on the past, learn from it. Yeah. And that's a very productive thing. But under these kinds of circumstances, stress, threat, poor mood, we're fast forwarding and rewinding in unproductive ways. Right. So right, we're right. ruminating. We're like regretting. We're Ugh. stuck there. We're attentional, attentionally rubbernecking in some sense. Like you're looking saying. at a couple world class ruminators <laughs> right here. There are. I mean, so right, or you're yeah. catastrophizing and worrying yeah. about the future. So let's just be clear about what rumination is. I mean, do you think both of you? You both said that you ruminate. Do you think that it's it's uh, helpful when you return no. from a period? No. Of totally While it's happening, I'm smart enough to go. You are in a vortex. This is not helpful. I know this is unproductive, and yet it is impossible to step off the ride. So this is where my work actually enters the scene. The first thing is to recognize, oh, when I'm ruminating, my attention isn't here. For sure. And that flashlight, we talked about the flashlight being able to be directed, but the flashlight gets yanked. The same system gets pulled. Uh And the kind of content that pulls you is this type of content, preoccupations, worries, uh, regrets, etc. So one thing you could do is say, why the heck do I keep ruminating? And that's not going to get you very far. <laughs> so what I'm interested in is if we know we have these tendencies and under certain circumstances more, and it's not productive for us. In fact, it, we know it drives down mood. Yeah. It makes us make a lot more errors. Yeah. We, our decision-making is worse. Our relationships can get impacted. If all of these are the consequences of having an attention that is displaced in time more often than we want it to be. Yeah. How can we train for that? Yeah, the one that breaks my heart is I'll be like in a family moment that is special and should be memorable. And I'm talking to everyone. I'm looking at them. I'm opening the door. I'm putting the kid's jacket on. But I am fucking 99% of my brain is ruminating on this one thing. And those are the times I certainly feel guilty about it. Yeah. All right. So I have some practices I've stumbled across. Uh Uh-huh. So one is my breathing. I start getting really crazy focused on my breathing and I make a noise. I go, and I do that over and over and over again. And then that that gets distracting enough that I kind of start feeling, I'm focusing on other input, uh, right? Other than my brain. I go work out like I don't want to, but I force myself to go work out. I do something very physical in hopes of not going to take a long walk. That sometimes helps. Are any of these practices included under the umbrella of mindfulness? Not really. (laughs) But I think this is where we could talk about mindfulness because you're doing a lot of stuff. You're putting energy into solving a problem that you think is a real problem. And I think it's worth at least adding to your menu of options. Mm -hmm. So if I could say a teeny bit more about attention. Please do. So we already talked about, and I'm I'm so glad you got to watch the TED Talk because you can see where it's the starting point. It's like, oh, attention impacts perception. That means wherever I direct it, there's going to be some real consequences to that. But that's still this notion of, focusing, narrowing, privileging some information over other information. Mm -hmm. But that's not the whole story with regard to attention. There's two other systems of attention that are really important to think about. The second one, and it relates to what the solutions are I'm going to offer. Yeah. The second one is actually almost the exact opposite. You know, this notion of focusing and technically would be called having a high signal to noise ratio. A high signal to noise. So the signal, like you right now, you know, Monica's face is the signal. That's what's important. Everything else is noise. So the signal's got to be bumped up and all the noise has to be disregarded. Mm -hmm. Privileging of some information, really not privileging, actively inhibiting other information. Right. That's what we call focus. Right. Right. So Einstein did it when he was thinking about a problem space. Mm -hmm. Athletes do this when they're like focused on whatever athletic performance they've got to do. 
So this next system is the opposite of that. And it's the metaphor I like to use is a floodlight. So like you've got a floodlight above your garage door, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like broad, receptive, and pays attention to what's going on right now. That's the only privileging it's doing is like this moment. Mm -hmm. That we call formally the alerting system. Okay. So if you're driving down the road and you see a flashing yellow light, not a traffic light, just usually by a construction site or something, it's like, what is your mind doing in that moment? Usually like pay attention. It's like broadly you're saying Mm -hmm. that to yourself, but you're not using the flashlight there. Right. You're receptive. You're kind of waiting for something that might require action. Yeah, you're taking in all the info at that point. And so that would be a very low signal to noise ratio. Okay. Because there's no privileging of some information over the other. Yeah. Okay. But the other key part about that is you're receptive. You're present for whatever it is. You don't have to do anything about it. You're just present for whatever it is. Yeah. So I hope that makes sense. These are quite different. Okay, the third system is actually something that will also sound familiar. It's formally called executive control, Uh which you probably heard about, right? So this is where we use our frontal lobes more. We use the frontal lobes for all of these, by the way, because it's a network, like we talked about a minute ago. But the executive system, the metaphor I like to use is like a juggler. So just like the executive of a company, this system's job is to ensure that our behavior and our goals align moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And when they, so you have to know what the goal is. That's yeah. part of its job. Hold the goal in mind. But you're also shifting based on the goals changing. You're updating. If, the, if there's yeah. new information, you're inhibiting when you're doing the wrong thing. All of that's executive control. And I call it a juggler because you really are. You've got to keep all the balls in the air. There's mm. a coordination aspect to it. And this system controls the other two. It's like, right now, I'm in the middle of this interview. I shouldn't probably be looking at my shoe mm-hmm. or checking my phone. The juggler would say, get back and do the thing you're supposed to yeah, do. Yeah. So anyway, the reason I'm mentioning all three of these because it ends up that attention can go awry in all three of these. And people with a certain kinds of attention deficit can be problematic in any of these. Right. The thing that may surprise you is that these are also systems that relate to our mental health and our psychological well-being. So oftentimes when we think of the depression, for example, we think of it as a, a mood issue. But as an attention researcher, it's also an attention issue. It's The flashlight is yanked by depressogenic thought. It's a lure. It pulls it. Yeah. And we think that in things like rumination, that's what's happening. That's why I call that attentional rubbernecking. It's like we can't pull it away. Right. And then disorders like anxiety disorders, everything is this flashing yellow light. You're just constantly in this hypervigilance mode. Right, so it's kind of a lack of focusing in. And this alarm going off, like something yeah. that needs my attention may happen. In general, we're very interested in the story you're telling yourself. Mm. And then, of course, you're searching the, the narrative. world. The narrative. Ooh. You're searching for data to confirm the story you're telling. Yeah. And in that search for that data, you're missing a lot of contradictory data along 100%, the ride. 100%, right? Yeah, so how's that working um, oh, physiologically? Totally. Yeah. So what you're doing in that moment, so the story in some sense is the mental model you hold, mm-hmm. right? So in some sense, it becomes the driver of your goal. Right. Like right now I'm expecting X, Y, or Z. And that means that the flashlight is going to be directed towards certain things. Mm-hmm. The floodlight may be not being receptive to anything at that point. It may be completely like only biased towards certain kinds of information. And yes, absolutely. You will miss inputs. And it might seem like, oh, that's annoying that we do this, but there's so many real life consequences. Oh, God, of this. That's how why people get divorced. Yes, yes. I mean, literally, they, they have a story about their partner and that's the only thing they will ever see. 
everything is confirmation bias, right? Yeah, yeah. So here's the question then, and it goes back to some of the solutions. How do you drop the story? Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, how, how do, do you? you? <laughs> and you can learn to drop the story. You can. You can actually train yourself to drop the story. And this is where mindfulness is so is powerful. It, do you introduce a different story and pursue it? Or how do you, yeah, how do you change direction of the story? Introducing a different story is actually still doing the same kind of process. Like what I would say with something like the solution to all of these things that we've come to in the lab, I was not interested in mindfulness meditation at all. Like right. I'll just tell you, we were talking earlier about Indian background. It was like one of those things my parents did that I don't want anything to do sure. with. Yeah. And in fact, I would say it was also tinged with a lot of sexism in the culture. And I was like, no, no, yeah, yeah. not for me. Yeah. I, we came to mindfulness because it ended up that all the other things we were doing to help people's attention so that they could drop the story on command, so they could notice when they needed to, when they could, so they could direct the flashlight when they needed to, so that they could become aware of the mind wandering that was driving the story. Mm-hmm. Nothing else was working. Nothing else was consistently protecting attention. And so that's how mindfulness entered my lab. I just want to say that. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm a, yeah. you know, it's, you got to, especially as an Indian person, people think, well, this is just your cultural, sure, <laughs> you know, sure. you're required to push mindfulness yeah. onto the world. You're like non and you, and you love Yeah, you uh, love meditation. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and as, a, as a neuroscientist, I was just like, yeah, there's no evidence that this thing works. And when I actually started this work, there was no evidence. The, right. the field was not existent since the early 2000s. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that the reason I wanted to study this is to add to people's toolkit. And it really is a different set of skills that we're developing with it. So it's not really about, you might say, whereas conventional thinking or conventional, even therapeutic approaches are about reframe, yeah. change the content, change, change even where you, how you place your attention. And I would say those are fine. Those are great things that you can do. But what about if you could deframe? Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Sleep is a big deal. If you're not getting your Z's in, then it just makes everything so much more difficult and you feel a long way from the top of your game. So every now and then, not being able to get sleep and stay asleep is so annoying and you think, ah, if only there was something that could help. Well... There's sleep, and then there's Natrol Sleep. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients like 99% pure melatonin to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol. Sleep tonight, live tomorrow. Click, tap, or visit natrol.com to shop now. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. We are supported by New Balance. Whether you're going for your first ever jog around the park, getting ready for a marathon, or even picking up the pace on the last stretch before you get home, if you run, you're a runner. Whether you need shoes for comfort, stability, or race day speed, they've got you covered. Because the only right way to run is your way. New Balance. Run your way. Visit newbalance.com running to learn more. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Oh, get recruiting. Patience is a good thing to have, but you shouldn't wait around for everything. Sometimes if you want something, it's better to just go for it. I'm a just go for it kind of guy. You gotta get it. Yeah, I'd rather find out I was wrong than not try. Yeah. 
You know what else you don't want to miss out on, especially as a business owner? Hiring the best people for your team. That's why you should check out ZipRecruiter. Try it for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. They can help find top talent fast. And once you find a candidate you like, ZipRecruiter puts you at the front of the pack. Use their pre-written invite to apply message to connect with your favorites ASAP. So let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Tap the banner to learn more. Let's do a real world example. So Rob is always late. Mind you, Rob, this is why it's a safe example. He's always early. But <laughs> my story is Rob is always late. And not only is he always late, he's always late because he doesn't respect me yeah. at all. And it's because he's gotten totally cavalier about this job. And right, so now, now I'm building all these things based off of mm-hmm. my stories that Rob's always late. Yep. So what do I do next? First of all, this is not an in-the-moment, quick-fix kind of thing. But mm. first, this is what I would do if you'd never heard of mindfulness and you were not even willing to think about training the brain yeah. so that you can do this more often on demand, on call. Mm-hmm. The first thing you could do is watch the mind creating the story. The first thing you have to do is realize thoughts aren't facts. Yeah. So you <laughs> say to yourself, Dax, you have a story right now. You're, your thoughts are, you don't even say story. Right now, Dax is experiencing a lot of irritation because he thinks blah de blah de blah. Do you know why I like the word story? Because we recognize stories aren't necessarily factual. Yeah. We recognize there's fictional stories, there's non-fictional stories. That's right. Stories. I so think it's a great b- term to use. By, yeah. by saying, like, once I admit to myself I'm telling a story, I have to admit, oh, I'm writing it. Okay, right. well, if I'm writing it, then why am I writing this story? Well, that's where I probably would go in a different direction. Okay, great. I would not go with, why am I writing the story? Then you're elaborating in some sense. You're staying <laughs> with the story. Sure. I'm, so, I'm probably going to now build a case for why I made that story. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. this is all, I put this all into category, conceptual elaboration. Okay. And this is the way the brain works. It's an entirely associative network. You do something associated with, just like hyperlinking on the internet, right? Right. It's correlating things. It's not just correlating. It's actually connecting them. Like, I'm linking this topic to this topic. And all the other times Rob was late, and he's even late for parties. It's not just work. So he respect, disrespect me in every, for Rob, every aspect of my life. so safe because he's so early. So the point (laughs) is just, you're still in this conceptual landscape. Uh Uh-huh. So instead of, and this is why replacing one story with another doesn't get you out of really being able to watch what the mind is doing and not be an active participant. So you are, you are, when you take an observational stance, and this is, I sometimes refer to it as having a bird's eye view or right. technically called decentering or defusing. You're not fused with the story because what happens is that you're not seeing your mind experiencing a story. You are in it. You are feeling it. Mm-hmm. And so taking a little bit of distance can be very helpful. But in doing that, the flashlight only exists in one place at one time. So right now, you watching the fact that you're having these thoughts means there's less actual cognitive energy going into continuing to build and elaborate those thoughts. Right, 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 right. So it helps you distance yourself. In so, that way. so again, what does someone physically do to create that distance? I'll give you an example from my own life. This, yeah. this happened to me last, last night. 
So I'm excited. I'm going to come see you guys. It's, yeah. I get to be in the actual attic where all this <laughs> happens, right? So there's anticipation. There's anxiety. And I'm like, I got to sleep. I can't be doing this. Why can't I freaking yeah. fall asleep? So I'm in that space and I'm like, ah, I see what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I could do that and I did a lot more quickly than I would have done in the past because of sure. practicing. But what I did in that moment is I said, okay, let's really accept what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, she's having a little bit of nervousness. Yeah. Her mind is going. And I really was talking to myself that In way. In the third person. I was talking to myself that way. I mean, she's having, she's, I mean, she's having a lot of nervousness and anticipation. I mean, she's feeling a lot of pressure. I mean, she's feeling like this matters and she cares. I mean, she is, is caring about what's going on. Like, I'm just, I'm just watching it. And then that kind of calmed it down. Yeah. I like all. that you found a positive in it, though. I definitely did. I would say that's sort of this other aspect of it, which is in the same way when you talk to your daughters, when they're having, when they're upset with each other or themselves, there's a self-supportive aspect. You're just helping somebody see. You're mm -hmm. befriending your mind instead of fighting it. Mm. And, and by just describing the facts as they're unfolding as it's happening, it provides that distance. And then I said, okay, what I should probably do right next I could do right now is I'm going to start going back there into those neighborhoods of my mind if I just go back to doing nothing. So I've said all this stuff. I'm feeling a little more distanced. Things are a little bit more calm. I'm not stuck and fused with that content. And then if it were other circumstances, and I've had this before, I might say, okay, I'm going to pay attention to my breath for a little while. And I'm not going to, just to, to make a distinction between what you said, I'm going to watch my breath in the same way I was watching my mind. Sensations are occurring, you know, in breath, out breath. Well, really quick, that's what I meant about what physically are you going to do? Like, I don't find that more thought helps thought in general. Like, I, yeah. so I was wondering, so the breath thing for me would be what I meant by like physically, what can you do? But the breath thing doesn't matter. So I'll tell you what I did instead. The breath mean, meaning, I thought you meant you were manipulating your breath. Like, like you, were, you were exhaling. No, 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 no. I'm making a noise loud enough that it catches my attention. Ah, okay, good. Like people go, watch your breath. Well, it's not loud enough for me <laughs> to, yeah. to really focus on it. So I make it loud enough I for me to I actually think that's on. a great strategy. Oftentimes when people say they can't pay attention to the breath because they feel like they keep controlling it, I'll say, listen to it. Yeah. It's exactly what you're already doing. Yeah. Uh, last night, the other thing that was happening was there was like a very loud air filter or something in that room that oh, I was in. Geez. And I was like, I'm going to do mindfulness of air filter. Instead of hating the fact that this happening, I'm just going to listen. What's the texture of these sounds? Mm -hmm. And just be with that. And then I drifted into sleep. Oh, wow. So all I'm saying is- I needed is, you last night. <laughs> I was up forever, yeah. But these kinds of things, these are just, you know, in some sense, I don't think I would have been able to do this if I hadn't been training for it. Right. When I wasn't in this ruminative loop, anxious and ruminative loop. But so the other thing I was going to say is the normal things that we do to talk ourselves out of certain situations, et cetera, still stay in that conceptual landscape. When we are under stress, especially for long periods of time, all of that is attentionally costly. It is taking your attention to build a different story. Mm -hmm. And so we tested this out in the lab by comparing uh, positivity training to mindfulness training with, with pre-deployment soldiers. Because it was a big question, like... When you're in bad situations and you've got to kind of neutralize that difficulty, well, maybe seeing the good and, and not even seeing the good, like actively thinking of all the good things so you can feel more positive. Mm -hmm. seems like a reasonable way to go. And positive psychology is something that has been helpful to people. Yeah. This is a, a gr like a real-time gratitude list kind of. Not no? even gratitude would be even a little more balanced because gratitude may be more 
slow going in some sense. I'm thinking like, think of my favorite song. Imagine my brain mm. hearing it. Oh. Your happy Name place. Four, your happy place. Right, right. Happy place takes a lot of attention to build. You're building a castle mm. in the sky. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was one consideration. So we had these pre-deployment soldiers. They were going through intensive field training. So mm. they were week after week after week. And what we knew from our prior studies is that whether they're soldiers or undergrads or even athletes getting ready for some big event, anytime you've got some ongoing or protracted period of demand, attention starts declining. Your capacity just starts declining. And so we knew that. We knew that baseline, they're not going to have a lot of attention over this period. And when we looked at people that we gave no training to, sure enough, they went down over time. So then we wanted to compare what happens if you give this positivity versus mindfulness. Now, how is mindfulness different than positivity? So we already talked about positivity is you have a certain frame, you're creating these stories so that you can fill it with certain content, right? Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is about paying attention to our present moment experience without a story, without elaboration or reactivity. So, you know, the way I like to visualize it, because that helps me, is I'm not in fast forward or reverse, even though there's oftentimes nothing wrong with that and very helpful. I'm in play. I'm just right here, right now, and I'm going to just be here. But I'm not just here in a normal, everyday sense where I'm editorializing about my experience. I'm here without a story. Mm. I'm getting the raw data of what's happening. Mm. And we give them a whole suite of practices where they're learning this. They're learning this for multiple weeks. And so just like the other group that we didn't give any training to, we tested them, these, these other two groups of soldiers also. What we found was that the positivity group also significantly declined. Their attention also got worse, but the mindfulness group, they stayed steady. Their attention didn't decline, and in many studies now we're finding that their mood doesn't decline. Mm-hmm. Their stress levels don't go down as much. So it's in particular important when there are high-stakes circumstances, mm-hmm. And situations that we know are probably going to not leave that attentional fuel to allow you to build the positive story. Yeah. So you're fighting again. You're like pushing the accelerator when there's no gas in the tank in some sense. So I hope that distinction makes sense of like stepping out of that conceptual space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder what category would you put this in? So I've been on like a 10-year trajectory to eliminate road rage from my life. At its peak, I would be out of the car at stoplights once every couple months, uh, engaged with other gentlemen. And I took baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. The thing I've now landed, like, not to bore you, but I had rules. Like, number one is you can't get out of car. That was just year one. You can't get out of your car anymore. Okay, I made it through a year with that. Great. Now it's you can't scream at anyone, right? I did that for the, okay, great. Now I'm not allowed to honk at anyone. So it was like baby steps towards this. So now what I do, I start monitoring someone. I'm a sheriff, right? So I'm driving in my rear view mirror. I can see someone trying to snake their way up and I start getting obsessed with them and I'm going to fucking shut them down. Like this is the racket in my head. And I now force myself to start reading license plates in front of me. Like, okay, that's from California, seven, eight, G, four, seven, under the next license plate. But I have to be that active so that I stop thinking about this person that's approaching from my six. What is that? Okay. You're, it works, you're, by you're, the way. I was going to say, you're using great strategies, right? Okay. But you're still leaning on the same systems. You're taking that flashlight that was obsessed with that person tracking them to now putting it here. So, And if you have attentional control and you've got good capacity expending in that way, it's probably going to work fine. It, it sounds like it has been. Mm-hmm. But what if you don't have attentional capacity? 
what are you going to do then? You know, does it mean well, you're going to just default? Well, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. So here's what I'm saying. All of that is you're leaning on the flashlight. Mm-hmm. And the jugglers here are saying, you're not allowed to have road rage displayed anymore. Yeah, this is against your goals of this holding not, on to your money exactly, and not going to jail. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. what I think in some sense what we're doing with mindfulness training, the weakest muscle, if you will, of attention is probably that floodlight. Taking that observational stance. So, and getting more granular with it. So you probably notice that you're starting to feel a little edgy when pretty far into tracking this person. Like you're like, oh yeah, no, I see it, I see it, I see it. And this means you've got to practice outside of while you're actually in the car doing this. That's the other thing. It's got to be like a workout separate from this. Yeah. You're not going to start by thinking about difficult emotions. You're going to sit there and you're going to watch your mind for like a minute. You're just going to watch your mind. In this book I just wrote, I call it river of thought. And there's many different ways that people talk about this, but you're like at a nice rock, smooth rock at the edge of a riverbank. And your mind you're going to think of as like, what's going on in that river? Thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations. It's all coming. It's all going. Mm -hmm. And you're practicing taking this observational stance toward it. And not being in the river floating. Not just that, but you're not going to go in and say, oh, that's a really cool leaf. I'm going to, oh, look at that fish. You're not following anything. You're allowing it. And that's the steadiness I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And when you can do this with your own mind, the title you, you saw, 12 Minutes a Day, comes from many studies where we found about that amount of time a day is the right amount of, of a workout that people tend to be able to to keep their attention stable. Yeah. But It's done you, in the morning, I presume? You can do it whenever you want. Oh, okay. But if you practice being there with your own mind... For whatever comes up, I'm just, and by the way, not, I'm going to think these thoughts. I'm watching. I'm watching what's happening. Yeah, this thought coming. Well, there it is again. There it is again. Thousand times. Yeah. And in that kind of a practice, what you're doing is the off-task aspect of that is when you go down a particular road. It's like, oh, that thought led me to another thought. Get back here. Sit on the rock. Mm-hmm. Just sit here and watch mm-hmm. what's going on. Mm. Because some people think it's not having any thoughts. Oh, no way. Which is impossible. And then they're like, I can't do it. I can't do meditation because I can't stop thinking. It's like, well, no, that's not what you're trying to do. If you're alive and conscious, you're going to have thoughts. Yeah. And that's the first thing is like, we kind of skipped to the second practice is when I'd probably want people to do if they're hearing this and never heard of mindfulness first. But what I would just say is if you can do this with yourself, with your own mind and all you know about your own mind and watch it in this way, Build up to 12 minutes. Don't just start there. You can take anything. You will have a toughness that you have never experienced before Mm -hmm. because you can be with yourself and you know that no matter what, you are just there steady. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can do this, you won't need to look at the license plates. You'll just be, yeah, it's there. You can acknowledge it, but it will be a different stance you take in the middle of that experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is getting a little egocentric, but I do want to just add one element I also employ, and I want to get your opinion on that, which is sometimes I can stop the racket before I have to stare. License plates is like, that's we're at DEFCON 1, you know, I'm about to go crazy. I see the person, and I go, you think this person is aware of you, and they're trying to best you, and you are not in their world, and this person is really representing all the other people you think that tried to screw you in childhood. Like none of that is like attribution error, basically. Mm -hmm. I I catch myself with attribution error, which is this human has no intentions towards you. They don't know you exist. You drive fast. You're never doing it personally to anybody. I mean, that's 
something I just try to remind myself of really quick. Like this has nothing to do with me, what's going on behind me. But because it feels like it, I feel like I'm being attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. that's just me more thinking I think that's my a way really, out of things, that You're but. doing all the things that you've such great strategies because you're dialing down self. The flashlight of attention is really built not only to direct it, but to be pulled by things that advantage our evolutionary survival. Anything self-related mm-hmm. yeah. is going to be really, really yeah. salient. Someone you. concerned with their own well-being is likely going to reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, but what I was going to say is before you even do this kind of river of thought thing, there's like a first step that I think is really important, which is even to know where your mind is, what I call the find your flashlight practice. So you do exactly what you were doing with your breath. Like you focus on the breath, but you add a couple of things in. So for this period of time, I'm going to focus and do it not, this is very important. Pick a time, not in your regular life, like not in the middle of activities, to practice this. It's almost like the same way we do. Like carve out time for it, you're saying? Not just carve out time, but do it like you would weight training. Like, right, right, yeah, right. you can you can get a strong body by moving things in your garage, but... You don't have you, to tell me. <laughs> as we sit here on top of it. No, but you want to set it aside because that will grow this intrinsic capacity. You can strengthen it, and then you can use it wherever, whenever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's why I'm saying do it in like a stillness practice where there's nothing else happening. Yeah. Anyway, so you you said, for this period of time, I'm going to focus on breath-related sensations. I'm going to be very specific. I'm going to have like a laser pointer to what those are. I'm going to be very clear on what the target for my attention should be. Let's say coolness of air for you, maybe sound. Mm -hmm. And then you say, for this period of time, my executive control is going to have as its goal, put that flashlight right on that target. When my mind wanders, I'm going to notice that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to redirect it back. Yeah. So this is very that, much like transcendental meditation training, which I've I done. would say in some sense, it maybe it is, but really the difference with mindfulness is that it's about what is happening right now. We're not trying to go anywhere else. It's the most ordinary aspect of what's happening. Yeah. It may be that you're focusing on a mantra or something like that with transcendental meditation. Here you're using whatever object, it could be sensations of walking, it could be the conversation partner you have. Yeah. But the point is the key is that you're not only being better at directing that flashlight and redirecting it back. But that noticing component you're beginning to establish very early on. Yeah. And just like Monica was saying, it's a win when you notice that your mind wanders. Well, I was going to say, we have a reward system, and that's really how we're learning at all times. So it's like if you endeavor on this practice after a few rewards, after you get through a few situations that you previously couldn't navigate without a, a dump of cortisol, your body knows that. You're always like, oh, wow. Yeah. This other thing that I was talking about, that river of thought, or some people are like, the mind is a vast open sky. We're following the clouds or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a different practice. That's something we call open monitoring. So you're staying in the most receptive. You're really exercising that floodlight and you're just here. Uh-huh. And you're cultivating, the technical term would be meta-awareness. Yeah, I wrote that down. Yeah, awareness, awareness of your awareness. So this is what was so heartening to me. So I asked a colleague of mine who'd been practicing for about 30 years, how long do you go before you mind wander? I'm thinking he's going to say some amazing number. Yeah. And he said, seven seconds. Sure. And I was like, uh, <laughs> what? But this is the really cool part. And it actually relates to you tracking the guy in your car. Mm-hmm. He said, but I don't have to be in a full-on fantasy or in a full-on rage before I notice that my mind has wandered. And he said it in this like really beautiful way. Like, it's like I see a little ripple in a placid lake. 
like he is just much more attuned to where he is moment by moment, monitoring. Well, in that he's way. checking in with himself so much more that he's aware of every time there's there's so, some fluctuation. Maybe. So it's both the checking in, but it's having the tolerance, like the distress tolerance, the mental toughness to just be with it mm-hmm. without doing anything. So yeah. that's what I would say would be interesting. Like if you just add in this notion of like, just it sounds cheesy, but just be the heck out of this situation. Don't do anything. Just be it. Yeah, the thing that helps me sometimes get to that resting place is my mantra when I'm really struggling for a day or two is, and in those moments, my mantra is, this is temporary. This is temporary. Like, this is temporary. I don't need to try to fight this. I don't need to try to put it back in the box. Like, it's going to pass. And just the knowledge that it's going to pass, to me, decatastrophizes the experience. Exactly. I think you're doing, like, all these, like, deep wisdom insights, right? Interdependence. We're all related to each other impermanence and no self like this notion that this thing and you said it when you said the guy is not whoever's driving this crazy car it's like care about you <laughs> don't know who's in the car but now. it's <laughs> even your sense of this thing you're trying to protect maybe something is is a story i mean self is story yeah i see the hesitation and reservation people have because it's not unlike someone who literally can't do a push-up and you're inviting them to the gym and then their mind they are not a person who can do anything like they've decided that i can't run a mile I can't do this. I can't do a pull-up. I can't. And so if people have that reservation about physical activity, that's something they probably only experience once every couple months where they're like, oh. But your racket in your head is something that anyone listening right now is already juggling. So it's like you're double confirmed that you're not capable of it. Or in your mind you think, well, that's not an option for me. I mean, that sounds great for them. That sounds great. Yeah. But but that's not the case. It feels abstract too. I'm going to add that. It it does feel abstract to people, I think. At times it's felt abstract to me. Like, does it help to at least think about it as, okay, even just the activity itself, like Mm -hmm. this notion of like, just even the image of, all right, I'm pointing something here. Oh my yeah. God, it's over here. Yes. Like get it back. That, I think, in my mind, it helped me a lot. Of yeah. course. And that's the thing that I'm, uh, yeah, I'm always searching for in these yeah. because I think action is required yeah. on all things. It is. If you and desire I, a different state. Yeah. And sometimes the action is inaction in some sense. It's to tolerate the observing stance mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. elaborating. And that's the other thing that we're so addicted to thinking. Yeah. We can't understand how to not think. I mean, you are doing it. By focusing on the license plate, you are actively trying to not think. Uh huh. But I'm saying add this to your toolkit yeah. as well. Well, I've said it on here before. The reason I decided to start tackling this is I was like, okay, you've got Los Angeles traffic and you got Dak Shepard. Those are the two variables. So which one's changing? Because I'm pretending that somehow it's going to be a different experience when I drive. That's My expectation should be exactly that someone's going to hunt me down from behind. Like, <laughs> That's what I should enter my car. I, yeah. This illusion that I'm going to have an easy drive to the west side for 50 minutes is a bad place to start. But what if you just didn't have easier heart? It's a drive. Like, what if it was just, it's going to be a drive. It's going to be moment to moment. Whatever's happening is yeah, happening. Yeah, we have this saying in AA that I'm a religious about, which is expectations are resentments waiting to happen. <laughs> And I, that is so true for me. I think all these things can work in concert. They have know? to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm just saying, we got to pump up the stuff that we probably don't do as much by default. Uh-huh. And you got to train for that. And, you do. And that's why, going back to what I was saying at the outset of our conversation about that guy in the wheelchair quietly closing his eyes and being able to change his, the way he functions, 
what we're discovering is doing this is actually changing the brain from the inside out. Yeah. These attentional networks and their coordination is much more fluid. Mm. The mind wandering when it's excessive gets dialed down. Yeah. And it has a positive cascade on performance. And you know, I just want to connect it with something you said just to kind of wrap up my thought on this. The notion that people can't do this, right? Very strong and powerful. And I would say, when we started our work with the military, I thought it was, I did not have a lot of hopes that it was going to sure, work. Sure, low expectations. Well, like, <laughs> no, these people are going to, like, first of all, what? Mindfulness? You want me to, I'm about to go into a war zone. You right. want me to close my eyes and focus on my breath? What? Yeah. And that's kind of what some of them said to us. And some of them actually, the ones that were open to it tended to be the ones that had been previously deployed. Uh -huh. And they knew that mm -hmm. all those approaches that they were taking not that helpful and they needed something new. So they started practicing. The more they practiced, the more they benefited. But there was definitely a group of outright resistors that thought we were completely full of it. Yeah. And then what happened is like, you know, because we're tracking them. So they get tested before and after they go eight weeks apart. We give them a training, intervening. Those that practice benefit, those that don't decline. Mm -hmm. And then they go away, they're deployed. We test them when they come back. And there's a subset of these people that look better than before they were deployed. And I was like, what the heck? This mm -hmm. makes no sense. Like being in a war zone is gonna definitely make your attention worse. Yeah. Why is this particular group not showing that pattern? It was only a subset of them. So I ended up asking our trainer, like, we can't make sense of this. Anything about these guys that looks unusual to you? And she's like, oh yeah, these are the guys that contacted me while they were in Iraq. <laughs> and they said that crappy rotation as before, my buddies that are doing it are sleeping through the night, they're clear headed, uh -huh. uh, they're not suffering, teach it to me. So they learned how to practice while they were deployed. Mm. And what we saw was that when they did this, they benefited. Mm. So to me, that gives me a lot of hope that we don't know what people are capable of. They might not know, but when the need is there, they could certainly open up to trying. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You wasted a lot of time worrying about how you were going to be on this show <laughs> last night because you were absolutely wonderful and it's been such yeah. a pleasure talking to you. Thank I hope you. we get to talk to you again too. And I hope people give this a serious consideration and not be intimidated by it. And um, they should buy Peak Mind, find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. And it can't make you worse. I often tell people that like it could be a free <laughs> trial for you to see if it might really help you out. So such a pleasure, uh, wonderful having you and good luck with the book. Thanks so much. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Updates, updates, updates. So many updates. So many uppies. Uh, let's start with Hassan. If Hassan's coming through your town and you have an opportunity to go see his live stand-up show, uh, it, it is imperative. You have to go. So we went on Saturday night to see his new show, King's Jester. You know, I always struggle with the word jester. Oh, you do? Yeah, I want to say gesture. Oh, King's gesture. I get that. Yeah, well, and kings do make gestures. Big time. Wave, smile, thumbs up, middle finger to enemies. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, mainly the way. Wait, did we even tell? We told people we saw. We didn't. Did we not? Out of all the England updates, we did not. Oh, my gosh. We have okay, to. Okay, pause right. on Husson. Yep. When we landed in, in London, England, mm. we were in a van driving to the hotel. We had just gotten into London proper, and we were at a stoplight. So we were dead stopped, 
And then a motorcycle cop was coming at us. And I said to the girls, hey, look at the kind of uh, motorcycles the cops drive here. That was what brought our attention to it. Mm -hmm. And then a second and a third motorcycle cop. And then our driver said, oh, I think that's the royal security. Yeah, he said, I think that must be someone from the royal family. Yes. So immediately after that, a Range Rover pulls up. It's going in the opposite direction, but they're going for real one mile an hour, two miles an hour. Yeah. Because they're in heavy traffic. And as the Range Rover passes, the windows are not tinted at all. We are at (laughs) at this point, we are seriously about 11 feet from the window. Yep. And it's fucking Prince William. And you could see everything. Everything. They were on full display, which shocked us. We were so surprised. And we were like, oh my God, the simulation is so (laughs) stupid. We immediately land in London and see Prince William. Wait, maybe I did. Maybe we did say this because I, did I say the James Bond thing? I felt like what you said, 007 was staying across the hall from us. Did I say that? Maybe. Anyways, yeah. So- you know, if you're thinking of who you might want to see in England, it's it's the Queen, it's, right. it's Prince William, and 007, James Bond. Yep. That, for me, that's the top three. And we saw two of the top three within the first 90 minutes we were there. I said the only other person that would have really made the simulation go over the top is if we saw Terrence Posner Yes, there. Terrence Posner, like, f- flying by in one He'd of like the Like, actually, not Daniel Radcliffe, but... Terrence Harry Potter. Potter, yeah. On what are they, What's the brooms they fly on called? Brooms. Zooms. Okay. Okay. Back to Hudson. Back to Hudson. So we went to his show at the Microsoft Theater in um, downtown Los Angeles, and it, it's worth noting that's a seven thousand seat theater. Yes. It, it's enormous. And you feel it when you're in there. It's huge. It's huge. And it was fucking jam-packed. He sold it out two nights in a row. Fourteen thousand tickets in Los oh. Angeles. And then his show starts, and it starts at a good pace. In my opinion, it's on par with Homecoming King. But then it finds a gear, in my opinion, about 12 minutes in. And then it's like an episode of The Americans. It just is growing and growing and growing and growing. And it's so fucking intricate and so well-produced and so well-written. And then while also being incredibly loose. Yes. Like if I could, I'm going to be critical just so you know to believe me. Okay. okay. My reaction to Homecoming King Which was- Which is his first special His on first Netflix. special was- a-level performance of B-level material. Oh. That was, when we talked afterwards, you were like, do you like it? And I go, yeah, I thought it was really good. And you were like, you didn't think it was great? And I was like, no, I thought it was, I thought it was good. For Homecoming King, yeah. Yes. This is A-plus material, A-plus plus performance. I text him like, I, I felt like I was sitting at a Eddie Murphy show or something. It, it was incredible. It was incredible. I loved Homecoming King. I really thought it was incredibly special. And I guess for me, like what I was scared by and admired and loved is Hassan is so comfortable with his otherness. Mm-hmm. Like he coming in and out of speaking Hindi, like mm. especially in that first one, he does do it in this one too, but yeah. and he's calling everyone uncle and auntie, Yeah, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> Yeah, and I was so impressed by that first special. But then, yeah, and then this one is somehow better. And it's almost impossible to have your second special be better than your first special because you've spent your whole life writing material for your first special. And he did it. And I did leave, and I felt so moved by 
the fact that like he just owns himself. He never ran from it. He embraced it, and he and he forced all of us to get on board. Yeah, and I could never do that, and I was the opposite of that, and I was running in the opposite direction, and like seeing that it worked, that yeah. actually leaning in worked. It just made me so happy and sad for myself and jealous and all of those things, but it was beautiful. It was. And then he also does something that I really appreciate, which is I think increasingly comedy has to not just be funny, but have some kind of an emotional truth to it. And the way he explores the fucking dopamine dump of getting approval from strangers on (laughs) Instagram and social media was like, he took it to so an 11 in the greatest way. That was some of my favorite yeah. parts of the show was like just owning how fucking gross you can get. Yeah. <laughs> and what a monster you can turn into. Yes. It was like one of the first times ever, I think, which is a really weird thing to say, that I was like sitting in a group full of people. Mm-hmm. Desse people, oh, largely. There's so many. And yeah. I was also like, oh my God, look at this. Like he brought out everyone. Yeah. But I was sitting in this group and, and there are jokes about Indians and there are things. And I, I don't feel scared. I felt proud. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I belong in this community. I know what he's talking about. And I don't feel like I want to pretend like I don't. Well, you finally have a representation that's a gangster and not a guy going, you know, how, you know, we're out of fucking Slurpees or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It was really. You were, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen Monica cackle like this. It was such a joy to watch. I was getting so much fun, but then I would look over and Monica was like, when you've passed the point of laughing as loud as you can, and then you have to start <laughs> rocking silent. your body. No, you have to rock your body uncontrollably. <laughs> like you were rocking, rocking, rocking. I told you that one time in a movie, I had to stand up straight. Like I'd passed <laughs> the rocking phase and just had to stand up. And yeah, you were really close to just standing, I think. We were so fucking happy for him. It's going to be on Netflix too, eventually. And I just hope everyone watches but it. But I hope they go see it live. If they can, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that his tour is coming to nearly every city. And... um you know, hopefully he'll add shows and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, man, he is, he's really, really getting to like master level and it's really fun to watch. It is. Okay. That was an update. Uh, Prince William was an update. There was an, oh, 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 a postcard we received that we'd like to read. Oh my God. Okay. Here we go. This may be the thing that I think I feel the most amount of pride in, in the last year. This is a handwritten postcard. Okay. Dear Dax and Monica, Thank you so much for having me back on your podcast. I love the question about blowing your dad or eating out your mother and have posed it to any number of people, all of whom were delightfully sickened at the thought of having to do either. Sincerely, David Sedaris. (laughs) First of all, to see it in, in cursive handwriting, that question is so funny. I love the question about blowing your dad or eating out your mother. Eating out your mother. That was one of these. I can't tell you how many times we do we we do that all the time in the pod. And um, in fact, it's worth noting that our our good friend Laura, who works on the show, and her now fiance Matt, who's an incredible hairstylist. Yes. The first time the pod ever met him, it was in deep deep lockdown, and it was over a a Zoom call where we we were all being introduced to Matt. And I mean, what's high stakes for Matt? Mm -hmm. It's like there's all these dudes. You know, we're all too dude like to begin with, and he was just doing great, 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 great. And I think I said, like, well, Matt, that was a great showing. I'd just like to close this out by asking if you'd rather suck your dad's dick or eat your mom's pussy. 
And he didn't bat an eye. He just goes, well, I think I'd have to blow my dad. I could never look at my mom again. And I was like, he's in the group. We talk about it all the time. It's a great question. And um, I'm just really, I'm really proud that something I thought up Sedaris is now incorporated into his own life. He connected with it. That's my Hussin at the Microsoft Theater moment. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any other updates? You're drinking coffee. That's about the only update, which has made me so happy. I've been waiting, fingers crossed. What's great is, you know, I've never, ever encourage you to drink coffee. No, you have not. Which makes me think that I should just shut up about MDMA and then maybe one day you'll give that a shot. (laughs) Maybe. It does up your chance of pooping your pants. Mm -hmm. That I've noted. Yeah. Makes me thirstier. Yeah, well, we wanted that for water specifically. For water specifically. And I am dehydrated, so that's good. And you have to brush your teeth a lot more. Mm. Coffee breath. Oh, because coffee breath. But I do want you just to know that in the chain of stainers, tea's number one, mm, mm, mm. wine, yeah, then coffee. Coffee, ironically, is less staining than tea and vine. That is surprising about tea. I believe you, though. Yeah. <laughs> you, asked, you asked me the <laughs> other day, <laughs> speaking of Laura, yeah. Laura told me that if you write to the president, any former president, that... If, if you invite them to your wedding, you send them a wedding invitation, they have to respond and they'll respond with like, thank you for, you know, a letter. Yeah. Thank you for Unfortunately, the invite. Unfortunately, my engagements <laughs> Congratulations. preclude me from. Yeah. So she told me that and I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And then I was like, who are you going to invite? Obviously, obviously Obama. So I told you this and you were like, what percentage do you believe Laura when she says something like that? Right. And I said really high like she she doesn't really say things without knowing they're certain mm-hmm. yeah well we established it like maybe you said 85 or 92 or something yeah which is really fucking high that means like whatever they tell you only 12 mm-hmm. percent of the time you're going to go google it to make sure that's true before you repeat it out in public exactly okay <laughs> so then i asked you to give me a number out of 100 yeah and i, I was scared I, to answer why i knew it was going to be low and i said well look the amount of things that I've taken from you and repeated way more than Laura, mm-hmm, way more mm-hmm. than anyone else. Mm-hmm. But we got into the quantity quality. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, the quantity's just just too high with me. That's right. What we figured out is that that Laura, she might drop one fact a day, or less even. And I'm in the like a couple hundred a day are yeah. coming out. Yeah, and yeah. just there's no way the accuracy's there. <laughs> there's just no way. <laughs> I think truly I give you like 70%. Well, that's pretty good. Considering. The volume. Yeah. 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 That's pretty I'll good. take it. You know, any number works. Because I'm me. You know, I'm probably not changing. No. Yeah. This is me. No one's asking you to change. Right. And I can't control what percentage people think I'm correct. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be doing it for the percentage, you know. No, no, no. Will you grant me this? Even when I'm wrong. With the exception, and again, I remember it. It's it's in my head of like deep shame is the time I estimated Grand Rapids, Michigan having a million people. I was off by like a factor of three X. You hated that. I hated it and I remember it. But even you will, I hope, grant me that when I'm wrong, it's a very small percentage. So we were watching something that, oh, it was about the Russian Olympics. Yes. The Olympic team. And I was saying, you know, back when they were the Soviet Union, they they spanned 13 time zones. Because it was very confusing. There was a Russian mafia operative that's clearly Asian. 
Right. And I was trying to explain, you know, well, USSR, man, it went all the way past Mongolia, and a lot of the Russians are Asian. Yeah. And, and I said it spanned 13 time zones. And then... You were like, fine. It's not like you challenged me. And I thought, well, let's look that up. I think it's that. I go, I think even currently it's 11. I never got confirmation that it was 13 under USSR, but I did get confirmation 11. it was 11 as Russia. Yeah. So again, let's say I was off by two. Yeah. The point is still, you know, we're four time zones and they're plus 10. That's true. You're never like fully, fully off base. It's more, way more about the, the point is that the place is enormous, almost beyond comprehension. Yeah. Yeah. Three <laughs> times wider than... <laughs> Uh, the U.S. of A. What percentage do you believe me? You're not a huge fact dropper. You're more of an opinion. Surprisingly. <laughs> In my real life, I don't drop very many facts. Yeah, you're more of an opinion person. That's true. Yeah, so I guess it's like what percentage of the time do I agree with your opinion? Oh, well, that, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we need to go down that. <laughs> <laughs> I am not trying to get people to follow my opinion. I have my opinion, and that's fine. And and I'm not trying to convince another person to believe the way I believe. But I do want to make my opinion heard. So well, you that- don't have any interest in that they will adopt this opinion? Because ideally, if you believe in this thing, yeah. then you would think like, well, the more people that believe that way, the better the world will be. Yeah, but I think I, I just, I more feel like if I try to convince someone to believe what I believe, they're never going to. So yeah. I'm just saying, like, this is my opinion on it and my thoughts based on my experience. Yeah. And then maybe that will affect their overall thoughts on the matter, but I'm not trying to anyway say, like, yeah. you must. I don't, I don't know for myself. I guess there's lots of them that, yeah, I'm really annoyed that there's some commonly held opinion that I find to be very, very destructive. Yeah. And I, I guess when I say it, I am trying to change the way people are viewing that. Yeah. I guess it depends on what it is for sure. If I think something's dangerous, then yes. Yeah, like if right. I think Arby's has the best roast beef sandwich, <laughs> that I'm not actually trying to. I'm just telling you what I think is yeah. the best roast beef sandwich, which I don't know that I think it is, but okay. that's just an example. No, you think of Houston's. Yeah, but I it, boy, those are hardly even comparable. I know. One is a straight chunk of prime rib, mm. and the other one is like the most paper thinly sliced roast beef. Oh, but you had it recently. Thing. Anyway, let's not talk okay. about it. I'm, I, okay. I still, in my mind, I'm gonna blame that location because okay. it's in a fucking shithole part of LA okay. where like none of those places are being run correctly You're in that right. on that block. <laughs> Okay, who are we uh, fact-checking? We are fact-checking Amishi. Oh, yes, 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 yes. From Chicago. Yes. Um, uh, hold on. Don't say it. Uh, don't say it. I know you want to. Because if I get it now, I'll have it forever. Okay. Okay. Uh, Gudrathi? Nice. Oh, okay. You did it. Good job. <laughs> did you have a trick to get there? Well, my trick was going to be to remember Carl Drogo. I know, but then... But, 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 but I couldn't even remember what they're called. Oh, Dothraki. Dothraki. So I didn't get to Dothraki. It's hard because I think Dothraki, you got to eliminate those connections because that actually makes it much harder. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I really liked her a ton and I really liked her message and I'm trying to incorporate some mindfulness back into my daily life. Yeah, there were a couple elements I really liked. We had a, we had a post debrief of it and I, I said, I do, I do like that the stepping back part. 
yeah. a lot. And I, I really like finding the sweet part of this negative thing you're telling yourself. Yeah. I love that. I love the third person. And like we had somebody on yeah, everyone's the, the Dothraki. No. Carl Drogo. No. His name isn't Carl, is it? <laughs> I've added Carl. Carl Drogo. Carl. Yeah. I was like, it does sound right. <laughs> Carl oh my God, Carl. Carl. Oh, oh Carl. God. Poor Carl. Remember poor Carl? Who's poor Carl? There was a divorce. Oh, poor shit. Poor Carl. Two Carls. Who's the second Carl? Oh, they really both? Oh, wow. It's been a rough year for Carls <laughs> and Carls. <laughs> Actually, whoa, that's a weird ding, ding, ding. What? Because stepdad is Carl Drogo. And oh, she my. was married to a What lazy Carl. engineers up there in the I know, fucking city. I know. I oh, know. my God. I got to talk to my dad about this. This is getting crazy. He, he cut a couple corners and it was. But do you think he actually just overpaid? So now they're freaked out. They're going to mess anything up for him. Everything just has to be really perfect. No, I, I, I'm leaning more towards that. Like he, he got the platinum package, but it was a beta product. It was like the first. Uh. Oh, iteration of it and he okay. was like I'll oh, fuck it I'll take it with the bugs because there's so much more shit that goes on for <laughs> me in this he story. would try to save a penny there yeah I yeah. know him. well yeah. he's, he's, he's very good with his money he is I gotta add one thing this is an update this is just a blow your mind okay. it'll be way better coming from Aaron because I just had he did the sleep study if you follow him on Instagram you saw he must have had 600 <laughs> wires coming out he looked like a fucking robot from the 30s and he finally got all the, the info today. And what they told him was, if you stop breathing five times within an hour of, while you're sleeping, you officially have uh, sleep apnea. And if you stop breathing 30 times uh, within an hour, you have severe sleep apnea. Yeah. And he stops breathing 72 Ugh. times. And oh, my God. <laughs> I told him if, if he had been healthy and never drank or anything... He probably would have lived to 160 because he, this guy, he'll run through a wall. Like he is still very powerful and has a glow about his face. He sure does. And they were saying he, they're surprised he didn't have a heart attack or a stroke. That's so scary. So that, I guess, yeah, that is the public health statement of this is that um, it's so bad for your heart, which he just learned by talking to this doctor. Um, So if you think you have sleep apnea, you know, get it checked out. Really, because I guess the strain on your heart is horrendous, and then also your oxygen levels can get really yeah. low, and you know that's your brain you're talking about there. I'm so glad he got it figured <sighs> Me out. Me too. Me too. I'm just when we all stayed in the motorhome, and this was pre-sleep apnea, and Aaron was sleeping. I mean, none of this is surprising at all. I could have counted myself 90 times that he stopped breathing. Yeah, yeah. He, um, it was so bad that it had passed feeling bad for him, and you guys were. Angry. Yep. You and Laura were both and angry. Matt. And I'm Matt. gonna Every, include Okay. Him. Everyone's angry. Yep. And isn't it funny that I just like I've I've been trained to I, not I could not believe it. <laughs> I know because I'm a really light sleeper. Like I hear noises in the house. We were up the whole night. I mean I mean the 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 whole night. And I even had my um, a sound machine on in my ear to try to combat yeah. this. It didn't work. It's not too much to say that you really are certain there's a fucking 1,200-pound grizzly bear sleeping yeah. in the same room. <laughs> anyway. Oh um, well, I'm glad he's getting it all me worked too, out. Me too. We're going to get 90 years out of him. Yeah. That's the goal. Okay. She talked about not looking like a professor. She mentioned tweed jackets with those, like, elbow things. 
Hmm. Oh, yeah, the patches? Yeah, they're called elbow patches. Okay, that's pretty literal. Or professor patches. Ooh. Because scholars would wear through the elbows of their jackets because they were sitting on their arms on a desk for so long. Oh, wow. So they had to protect their elbows. I wonder if professors ever say, do you want to rub professor patches? That's sexual. Well, that's the great thing is it's highly deniable in court, but it is very sexual. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wonder if my professor ever rubbed Professor Pat. He was never, ever wearing a jacket like that. He Always was a cool surfer. Oh, surf. Even though it was Georgia, he looked like a surfer. He's dude. like, what's up, yeah. little rippers? Yeah. <laughs> what's Cracker Books to page 78? Exactly. Tear it up. What was the top? What was his? Religion. Reli- oh, okay. <laughs> Western religion. Oh. Not like, not like. Bible study. Sure, it was sure, a, sure. It was a. It was a. It I'm was not going to say class. my opinion on that because I actually don't want anyone to have my opinion. Oh. But it is weird to me. I mean, I guess there's great value in understanding what impact religions Absolutely, have. Absolutely, yeah. But it also, at the same time, feels a little bit weird that like you you write a book that, again, in my opinion, is a fairy tale, and now someone would dedicate their life to in, interpreting this fairy tale. It seems a little but it's, weird. It's it's its effect on the world which had the most effect than yeah. any other thing. Any book. Anything, I think. Other like, than Harry Potter. Harry Potter's up there. Oh my God, did I tell people about my first edition or do you think they'll steal from me? I wouldn't say that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got a first edition. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Great. We loved her. Yeah. She was so fun. She gave us little um, brain squish balls. Mm-hmm. Do you know one of the training exercises for wrestlers mm. is to squeeze tennis balls? Do you know this? Oh, to get their, like... You want your grip. Uh-huh. Like, your grip is one of the most important aspects of wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling. Oh. Any wrestler, if you let, you know, you do a handshake with them or something, telling them to feel it a little bit or put their hands on their wrist, it's... it's, it's Really? Yeah, they have an inordinately strong grip. Well, you brought up wrestlers the other day and, like, how they're uh, high school wrestlers and how they're such a specific type. Yeah, and the ones I knew, yeah. And yeah. I fully agree. One of my best friends was a high school wrestler and he was a hundred percent that like so committed dedicated disciplined running around in trash bags that's what's really interesting is we have these we have categories where nearly identical behavior is pathological and then it, we see it as is productive in another because it is really kin to uh, eating disordered yeah. folks who really the weight. control is really the sensation that is so gratifying and it's totally. you know it's just a I know a putty hair away from <laughs> it is it is it is yeah it's, but it's kind of like all was it a saying when you were young no I've never heard okay that, that, that was vi- that's very colloquial from the eighties really I think it's in movies yeah but I think. It's like any negative trait. There's a positive spin. Like sure. you could take things that are negative and you know take their positive head of it. And if you're just looking at Olympians, like what goes into being an Olympic is in many by many definitions child abuse. Like we Disorder. were just what we were watching this the one. It's really good. Bad sports on Netflix. I think I've talked about it a couple times now. But there's one about the Canadian ice skating pair versus the Russian ice skating pair. Yeah. And this poor Russian athlete, oh. the girl, she's a woman now, but at the time she was a girl. And, you know, her father was an insane alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, 
and she lived, you know, in communist Russia. Some scouts came to town. They had everyone ice skate. She showed this innate ability, and they put her on a 36-hour train ride at six years old without her mother to go join this program. That's a kidnapping. And then it's by any celebrated. Other, it's celebrated. Because the end goal is the Olympics, it's not kidnapping. It's exactly. kidnapping. Yep. Oh, God. I'm so passionate That's about That's a grievance, yeah. Okay. Well, I love you. Love you. 